Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. Today, we will be to- talking about the organization Donnez Sans Comté and the blood donations in Lebanon. Our guest today is uh, Yorgi Teirouz. Yorgi is a, a pharmacist uh, currently in Al-Shifa Pharmacy, which is actually his dad's uh, pharmacy. He graduated from uh, the Lebanese American University uh, Pharmacy School in 2012. However, he has been there since uh, the early 90s. Uh, in the pharmacy. <laughs> In the pharmacy, <laughs> right in the pharmacy uh, since the early 90s, and he ended up founding the Donation Comte, which is a big NGO for blood donations in Lebanon, which we'll be discussing today. And our other guest is uh, Dr. Hamad Ali Jardali, who is currently chief resident in family medicine at the American University of Beirut Medical Center and has been on several episodes of the podcast uh, previously. Welcome, uh, Yorgi, and welcome, uh, Hamad Ali. Thank you, Khalil. I think it's my first episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jordi, so, so I mean, I think before we start talking about Donnez Sans Comte, I wanted to uh, discuss like what, what has the history been in uh, blood donations in Lebanon? Because I mean, you always see on like, I was there uh, before and, and now even on social media or on WhatsApp groups, you're like, we need an O negative blood and people start posting it on Facebook, on Instagram, everywhere to get somebody to donate. And this is, I think, a very hard process. So how, how has the history been uh, blood donation in Lebanon? So um, historically, there are two, two models in, in the world for blood donation. Actually, there are two, three models. You have the replacement system, we have the voluntary system, and we have the paid system. Okay. The paid system, who would that you pay for someone to come and give his blood? It's the worst type. Because the donor has tendency to lie just to get the money. And so by lying in the questionnaire before giving blood, it's a source of unsafe blood. Just because there's this little incentive of monetary reward at the end. The replacement system, which is an okay system, not the best, but it's an okay system, but puts a lot of pressure on the family. What do we mean by replacement system? Replacement system means the hospital, let's say, has a fridge that has 10 units of random blood types. So if a patient needs blood, he has to secure two units in in return of the two units that he might need in his operation. And in in that way, the hospital keeps on exchanging units from from the patient to the fridge And in that way, the hospital doesn't have to do any campaigns, any recruitment, any awareness sessions, and all the pressure is diverted to the family only. And they tell them, if you don't get blood in return, we will postpone the operation. We will not allow your patient to do his operation. And then this puts a lot of pressure. And usually they inform them about the blood need the night before. And that's why people, every time someone needs blood, we see a panic all over the social media, on WhatsApp, on social media, and people just start spreading because they need it urgently, urgently, urgently. The best model is to have a voluntary system, purely 100% based on voluntary system where we have just good awareness in the country and people have the tendency to go and give blood every three months without waiting for the need to happen because the need is there all the time. And so in Lebanon, 96% is based on a replacement system. Only 4% are based on voluntaries. And the numbers are, it doesn't add up. Knowing that most of the volunteers, most of the donors are, they consider themselves volunteering. But because they are labeled as a replacement donor, 
for that patient, then they are considered replacement and not voluntary donation because they are, so the hospital consider them, they are forced to come to give blood to serve that family. So let me enter the, the topic directly. What we did in the past 12 years approximately is that we introduced in the country the concept of the blood drive or the blood donation, uh, the blood on wheels, if you want. And so it's a small bus equipped with all the needed equipment for a regular blood bank. And we tour the country with a partnership, partnering hospital, because we do not collect blood ourselves. We have the hospital with us. So we have all the equipments and we give those equipment to the hospital. We also provide all the volunteers, all the manpower, all the marketing tools, all the logistics behind the blood drive. And the hospital would just bring two technicians and an MD maybe, or a resident. They would just supervise the whole process, take care of the actual medical stuff, and we take care of all the rest. So the hygiene, we take care of it. The equipments, we take care of it. The volunteers recruitment, the donor recruitment, the contact with the host. So we handle all this. And ever since we introduced that concept of the blood drive, we've seen a wonderful reaction of people willing to generously give blood to whomever might need, right? So it's not based on the name of the patient. So when we go to, a, let's say, to a university, AUBMC, and we set up our tents and stuff, the students would just come pass by, see something interesting, something fun, something joyful, where there are students around the and um, wearing a uniform of another organization. Now they see their friends, they get encouraged. It's a peer-to-peer -peer motivation, if you want. And then we just come and give blood just for the sake of living a good experience. And most of them would tell you, I'm doing this for the glory of God, or Allah, or I'm doing something good for humanity. And it's good because they're not just giving blood to that patient in particular. They're just doing good. And then the organization would tell them, on behalf of all the patients, thank you for, all, for everyone. It's not because, you know, when we first started, and I, and I can speak on my own if you want, unless you want me, you want me yeah, to wait for the questions. Uh, <laughs> right, let's, let's discuss first. So basically, what we're talking about is before your organization started, it was more of an as-needed donation in Lebanon. Like the, patient, the patient's family would need to find a... Uh, a donor that they know who would come yeah. and have the same type of blood that's needed for the patient and 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 give give the patient the blood which was a which is which which is still happening till now but probably because of your organization to a lesser degree than before. So uh, my question for you and then Hamad I will ask the next one is how did you come? I mean you're a pharmacist, right? You you go to your pharmacy, you come back home, you're busy with with the medications and all this other stuff, and then. How did you come to found to found uh, Donation Comte? Like, what made you decide to found this NGO? There are two versions of this. Uh, the first version is when I was back in 2006. One of my scouts, I was a chief scout in uh, in my school, and I was still at university, also studying the pharmacy. One of my scouts needed blood for his grandfather, and he needed five units of AB negative. And his grandfather is not someone that doesn't have connection. He used to be an ex municipality president. So he has the connection, he has the tools, but he couldn't find AB negative simply because there was not one entity that has all the database or there's uh, not enough awareness or he didn't know where to look for. There was no Facebook back then. So he just needed to do some calls and finding AB negative among your friends, you might do 200 calls to get one AB negative and that's if he can or not. 
And I remember in our little small scout group, we were able to find two donors. And we remember that the patient had a severe bleeding and they had no O negative, no AB negative, and the patient died because of shortage of blood. I know he has other diseases, but I remembered very well the faces of the family and how they were just not worrying about the patient or the disease. They were just worried about getting the blood he needed. And that stress that people go through every time someone they love needs blood is surreal. I mean, there's a better way to do this. I mean, we know ahead of time that there will be a need. Who's doing anything? Why there's not enough campaigns? Why are we not doing blood drives to increase the stock up of the hospitals so that whenever someone needs, blood will be available at the right time, at the right place, with the right quantity and the right uh, type. But what I realized is that it's not a one-time thing. It's not a, if you do a one campaign, it will be done. It's not. It's like you need, we need to f- find a model that serves the purpose every single day. So that's the first version, the friend of uh, one of my scouts. The second version is a more personal version, where back in 2006, I had a big car accident. My car flew from one side of the road to the other side. I was trying to avoid someone, and then I hit the, the beginning of the bridge, and my car flew on and landed on someone else's car. Uh, I ended up uh, killing the guy, and I had to spend some time in jail, 20 days in Rumia, in one of the toughest prisons in Lebanon. And it was a, a big experience, a, a very shaking experience, if I may say. But the, the story is that the grandfather of the person who passed away, who we, we've had to, sp- you know, we had to speak with him just to let us out, because it was, they call it Qada'u Qadar, or destiny. So I did not intentionally kill the guy, but I was avoiding someone, had a problem, and then ended up killing the guy. And so that same grandfather who got me out of jail, five days later, had an open heart surgery and needed blood. He was dying. And so I went there and I gave blood. I encouraged my friends and I gave, and they gave blood too. They felt that they did something good and supported me in my tough times. I felt good that I was at least able to give back. It's not the same. I know it doesn't, it's not the same. I mean, taking a life and just giving blood is not equal, but it was something as a start. And I'm going to add an extra layer for it. The day of the accident, the family of the patient, they went to the hospital with guns to take revenge because in the mentality of some parts in Lebanon, if you kill my son, I kill your son. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. And so blood for blood was only, so there was only reconciliation when there was blood involved. But our blood will be given differently. It will not be given just by killing me. We're given voluntarily. When I'm doing a voluntary sacrifice to stand someone I don't know, or to support someone I know, this is where I saw reconciliation with the family. It's only when there was blood being poured that there was reconciliation. And somehow I'm trying to do the same now with all the country. I feel our big problem in the country is that we never had reconciliation post-war. And by not having reconciliation, we will constantly not have electricity, not have water, not have decent garbage plant. I mean, everything will not work just because our people are not reconciled. We don't want to give credit for the other party that he got the electricity. No, then we just attack him. We stop it. We do our little corruption uh, corruption works. And then nef- nothing will get over it. And so that's what I'm trying to, re- to rework on 
focusing on having reconciliation between the people, not the parties. The parties are still too busy fighting with, against each other. But when we organize, for example, a blood drive between Jabal Mahsin and Bebet Tabbani, it's two areas in the north, uh, Beb al Beb, how we say it, door to door. <laughs> and, and, and those guys were, for the past four, five, six, ten years, constantly, there was a war between them. I mean, you see rockets flying from one side to the other. And when we got two fighters, we sat them next to each other. They held hands. And with the other hands, they were giving blood. This is true reconciliation. There are two fighters that were fighting each other. And now, just because there was blood involved, they're at peace. And they understand that by giving our blood, we're sorry for all the lives that we that are lost because of us, because of our little fight. And they feel at peace, and now they want to serve and help more. It felt good. In our eyes, it felt good. In their eyes, it felt good. In, in the eyes of the community, it was beautiful. And so that's why now my focus is a bit more on working on this rather than just working on securing blood to patients. We are doing this big part. It's never ending. I need to say one word. There is never enough in terms of blood. There's never enough. There's, the need is constant. But I mean, we can add a layer of reconciliation to move the whole country forward. I mean... 30, 40 years post-war and we still have the same problem. Stop. Someone needs to do something about reconciliation. I need to see the Ministry of Reconciliation. I think you're right because because a lot of it in Lebanon is individualistic. Like you you get blood, I get blood for my family member. I don't get blood for the community. And, and you are creating a, a community uh, NGO where, where the community gets together to get blood for the common good of, of the country, basically. Yes. So. Yes. It's also a mentality we're trying to break because when I first started back in 2008-9, I mean, I used to hear people saying, no, no, I don't give blood. I keep my blood for my party. I keep my blood for my family. I keep my blood for my little entourage or my work. And I was wondering, I mean, why do you keep on keeping them? Just give and in three months you'll be able to give again. This is a source of continuous life. You, you're constantly rejuvenating your cells, your your bone marrow is constantly producing new red cells and it's somehow eternal, eternally, the more you give, the more it will replenish and you can give more every three months. Yorgi, this was very deep. It was very introspective. You touched on a lot of things. You're talking about like a model for restorative justice. You're talking about creating a common uh, national identity. And I think uh, as someone who is part of the healthcare system, so to speak, we have great doctors, we have great hospitals, but it's a fragmented healthcare system. And it seems to me that you found a gap in the system and you're trying to fill in that gap. So I know in this uh, episode, you wanted to talk less about how you created Donets of Conte and to talk more about the day-to-day -day operations. I know earlier in the talk, you talked about how the hospitals shifted the burden from the healthcare system to the individuals. There's a lot of individual responsibility. So maybe now would be a good time to segue to talk about like the operations, the day-to-day, -day, what happens behind the scenes. So um, when we first started, we, we, I had nothing, no money, nothing. And I was just trying to help as much as I can. So I had the, the curiosity of everywhere I go just to collect people's blood type on my cell phone. So I would put, let's say, Khalil Diab and I would write next to it O positive. So that I used to collect all this and when someone calls me asking for blood, I would just give them five, six names. You call them and tell them you took their number from Donnez-Saint-Conté. 
and then they would respond to you. And with time, I realized that I cannot be giving patients or donors' name to, to patients because they're not throwing that little small paper of five names. If you have a family patient that has, let's say, uh, a blood type O negative, and I give you 10 names of O negative, you will not throw that name. You will just place it above your bed, uh, wait for the moment just to call them again. So if, you, if the neighbor needs O negative, you would give them the name, that list also. And then with time, you realize that that same list is being spread all over the country while these guys already gave blood and they cannot be called for the next three months. And here's, I re and here's where I realized that there's the big ethic question of blood in blood donation where the donor and the receiver should never meet because the donor should never feel that he did something for that, fa for that, for that family and the family does, should, not, should never feel that they owe that donor something all their lives. You just give and you get received. That's it, yeah, you know, it ends here. And so what we did in 2013 is that instead of having a call center that just gives name, you know, give names to the family, we are doing all the calls to the donor. We are contacting all the donors that we have. We hear all the excuses. We understand when is their availability or um, their medical conditions or all this stuff. And we manage our data. And so since 2009, today our database has more than 40,000 registered blood donors. They don't all give every time we call them. It's only normal. Some would give once a year. Some would give up to 12 times a year. Some would give platelets every two weeks. And so it's very customized. Every donor has different concerns. And so the database needs to be super comprehensive and very flexible to be able to fulfill all the need. Knowing that hospitals are not willing to make any changes. We need to say things as, as they are. My concern is whenever, a, for example, let's say, Muhammad, if you wake up today and you feel like giving blood, Today, I'm in a good mood. I feel like giving blood. I go to a blood bank and you tell them I want to give blood. The first question they would ask you, to whom? To whom? This is something we wanted to talk about, like how the lack of a central bank in Lebanon makes blood donations challenging. But we don't have a central blood bank. We have 100 blood bank, each in a hospital, and we have 13 centers for the Red Cross that is supposed to work as a national blood bank but they don't have the capacity yet. Or the mandate. And so the Red Cross is only acting as a blood bank. And the problem again, so one problem is hospitals are not accepting voluntary donors. Why they don't accept voluntary donors? So when they, when they see someone coming full energetic and feels like giving blood in their mind, if that guy doesn't have a patient's name, I mean, that guy did something doubtful two, three, four days ago. He might have an unsafe relationship. Um, he might have done drugs, needles, and he's here to do a free test. But that's sick of us to think that every person that comes generally to give blood is here to do a free test. I mean, you just ask him a question and he can tell you that, no, I'm here generally to give blood. I feel like doing something good. And I know that there is a constant need. And so that's just the major for problem. the listeners to know, uh, Jorge is talking about they screen for STI panel uh, and drugs and et cetera before of course. donations. The thing is, there's a, before giving blood, there's a list of questionnaires to fill, 54 questions to fill. Sometimes people would fill it, right? Every time they need to fill it. But the donor would give blood and then the hospital would do the extra test on the blood. 
And if there's, let's say, that's B, that's C, or any other thing, they would just discard the whole unit. So for them, it's a waste of $20, the bag, and the test done and stuff. Some hospital now are making the donor wait a whole hour to have the whole serology of the donor to be able to collect blood later. And this demotivates all the donor every single time. You're asking the donor to wait a whole hour to see if he's clean or not to be able to donate. And most of the time he can't donate. He's a regular donor that donates every three months. But in that particular hospital, he has to wait a whole hour. These are small problems that we see every day in the blood bank. So one, hospitals are not accepting voluntary donors and they're only relying on replacement donation. The second problem in the hospital is that we don't have unified standard at hospital. Because we live in Lebanon, you know, everything that comes from abroad is sexier. So we have the American system, the French system, the alien system. Every person starts with their own system. Where is the Lebanese system? What, who are we following? I mean, the same donor gets confused. If I lived in France for five years, I can't give blood at AUB. Why? You don't know. But if you go to, AUB, to, to Hotel Dieu, for example, which is a French system, they would take your blood. So having those different criteria from hospital to another demotivates also the donor, gets him a lot of um, questioning if I can give or not. And if, if it's going to cause me problems, I don't want it all. That's the second problem is since we don't have unified standards at hospitals, it also demotivates people. Imagine we still have hospitals that do not accept blood for, from women, just because women. We just cannot jeopardize 50% of the population just because we prefer to collect blood from men. It's, we cannot assume that all men are healthy or women are anemic. It's not the case. There are men who are anemic. And there are women that has very strong veins and blood. And so these ununified standards creates a lot of confusion. That's the second problem. Third problem is that we don't have an organization or an entity that constantly raises awareness about blood donation. So that's why I started my, uh, humbly, I started my own with the stuff that I know. And it's not only on social media. The campaign needs to be on one-to-one, -one, pure grassroots work. And that's why I believe the solution of blood donation, to get more donors, you need more volunteers. The more volunteers you have, the more donors you will get. It's, it's not one direction communication. On the contrary, people need to interact. They have questions. You need to fix misconceptions, which are quite a lot. And you need to, to make the people understand the problem in the system. That's why they have to try again if they were not allowed the first time to keep on trying again and again and again. I was deferred the first 20 times of my life for trying to give platelets saying that I have small veins. 20 times later, I was able to give the first time. Today, I'm one of the biggest platelet donor in the country. I've given 110 times with those thin veins. If I only believe that first 20 people that told me you cannot give, that's 120 patients that never got there, or at least I was, that's 120 donation less. I mean, the nurse or the technician in the blood bank, when they, de when they demotivate a donor or when they don't give him, give him the right excuse or tell him that you are deferred per permanently, not temporarily, or the opposite, by not giving the right information, we're creating more confusion on people. Imagine if a woman goes to a blood bank and they tell, no, we don't take from women. That woman has a group of friends. She will spread that news over and over, and then everybody would think that women can't give blood, which is wrong. I believe that volunteering is the root 
to solve the problem of blood donation. It's not only in Beirut, you need volunteers all over the country. You need a decentralized system of volunteers, well-trained, well-equipped volunteers to be able to hit the streets every time, to hit their universities, their companies, wherever they are, and to constantly register new donors because it's a cycle. And the more, and you constantly need new blood to keep on pumping hope and blood in this community. So basically your organization is doing like what a central blood bank does in other countries like France or the United States. Basically you are trying to make you one system for donations and, and also at the same time have people be able to uh, or spread the word and have a one way of volunteering for people all over the country, not only in Beirut, because everything's centralized to Beirut, but also in even the smallest villages in the country. So saying that, so how many how many blood donations have you been able to, uh, to do over the years me, and how many hospitals have you served? Let me tell you before that, that uh, the, the, the model. So the model is we have a call center that is up and running 24 seven. In 11 years, we haven't closed a single day. Confinement, Corona, explosions, we were there every single day for the past 11 years, 24 seven. We have zero infrastructure in the country. Every little thing takes so much time to be set up. So our call center is managing and overcoming every obstacle it comes in its way, whether internet, whether electricity, whether phone calls, quality, cost. I mean, it's a lot of challenges and we've been doing this good, can be better for sure. That's why now we're improving the quality of the call center much more. We're getting more people to support us. But before that, I had no funds. I was just running as much as we can. That's one model. The second thing is the day we introduced the concept of the blood drive in the country, we've seen a beautiful response from universities, from companies, from event organizers, from malls. Now, every time there's an event, if you look around, there's a blood donation. Consistency was the key. Be present everywhere as much as you can. And in seven years, we've organized 1,200 blood drives. This is not a small number if you do the math. It means a day over two, I had a blood drive. And every blood drive, I cannot collect blood myself alone. We at DSC cannot collect blood alone. We do not have this kind of approval from the government. But we have an approval to do good and be a link and serve freely. So what we did is after we got our first mobile unit, we are offering this, as I said before, to the hospital to come. So every drive I had to organize, we had to have a partnering hospital. It's We're doing the drive under their approval, under our tents, our equipment, our volunteers, and hand in hand, we're able to collect more blood and increase the stock of this hospital for the next week until they come back again next week for another drive to collect more and increase the stock. So in the last seven, eight years, we've organized 1,200 drive. We've collected around 40,000 blood units only from the blood drives. The call center in 10 years was able to get another 45,000 blood units. And right now, post-corona, we're reinitiating the blood drive because we had to stop the blood drive for a while since university was, I mean, they were not, major stuff, we had to put more pressure on the call center and the call center improved in Corona times, it doubled its efficiency. I was impressed, honestly, in times of Corona, we had double the donors uh, from the call center. And it, it was interesting to see because 
It's true that patient, that the donors, maybe they're not working, they're at home, but when you tell them there's a chance for you to save a life, they would just feel, since I have more time now and I'm home, let's do something good and get done. And it was beautiful. The call center from 500 a month to 1,200 a month is quite an achievement. So those are the two major operations at DSC. We're introducing one right now with AUBMC, which is a hospital rotation of volunteers in the blood bank. Since the blood bank has a shortage of staff and they're barely able to come to blood drive now since they are short on staff, so we are suggesting to the hospital to have two volunteers per shift. So a total of 28 volunteers covering all the shift all the week, a.m. p.m., a four-hour shift of a volunteer. They would come in pair and they would assist the blood bank with anything they need. You need data entry, we can do that. You need me to test, help you with the vital. Since we've done a lot of drives with AUB, our volunteers are well-trained for that. So it's as if they know half the blood bank. So they would assist them. They would assist the donors that are coming to have a better welcoming for the donors. These are volunteers and they rarely see smiles in the blood or a good word. They rarely see that. The blood bank is a stressful room. So a volunteer would welcome them with a smile. And the volunteer would also welcome the family of the patient. They would assist them. They would calm them, calm them down. They would tell them, we're handling your demand. So they are handling three different kinds of people. They're handling the blood bank technicians and assisting them, the donors and the family. The hospital rotation would be impressive. I have strong belief that this model would be interesting because if every university secures some volunteers to the blood bank and assist them, then we can have a looping model that is sustainable that costs nothing. Again, the money, the, the money issue is constantly in our mind. We do not want to solve the problem of blood donation with millions and millions. We want to solve the problem of blood donation and to have a sustainable model with no money at all. If we have a free office today, it's good. But our phone lines are costing us a lot. But if the volunteers at the blood bank find a way to encourage that same donor that came today to come back in three months, and then you have a loop every three months, then the model is sustainable with little effort. And the volunteer is only committing to four hours per week. He's a volunteer. I can't give more than four hours. But if you give me that four hours and you commit to that schedule, then we covered all the shifts. And it's only then that we have a, we close the loop. Blood drives are important because they increase the stock of the blood bank. The call center is important to respond to urgency demand, but the hospital rotation of volunteers would also secure a constant influx of new donors passing by to the blood bank or visiting. And then we have closed the whole system with the help of volunteers in the call center, volunteers in the blood drives and volunteers in the... What, was, what impressed me on your website, actually, when I went on it is you have your statements, like your financial statements uh, on the website. So people know where their money is going and what, what the overhead is in your organization. Uh, Allow me to say something. I'm not, I'm not very proud of our website. I've been working for the past five, six months on a new website because I think the website right now does not reflect exactly everything we're doing. So our new website needs less than a month to be done. Hopefully it will be done before Blood Donor Day. And, it, and then you would see clearly why our, I think our focus is how to serve the community, not only blood donation. Even though the organization is known to be only about blood donation, but when you have a someone post-explosion, post-August 4, 
they used to live, let's say, in Ashrafi or Jumaizi. And he was telling me that when the explosion happened, I had to leave, the, leave Beirut. I was not well. I was not well and I didn't know how to help. Okay, I cleaned the first two days, but then I didn't know how to help. I just left Beirut. And a month later, he comes and I tell him, just go and give blood. It will help you. So when the guy went and gave blood, he went to social media and said, you know what, after I gave blood, I feel better in here. I was able to help someone, not from my pocket, not from my time, but from my blood, my own blood. And somehow that thing is healing people in their mind, in their head. It's good. Not only physically you'll, you'll replenish your blood. It's not only you'll have less chances of having cancer or blood cancer or all these random studies that we see, but it's morally, it helps for sure. And so I feel like we need to focus a little more on this because the operation over there is up and running. The call center, the blood drive and hospital rotation, hopefully um, once that program will kick correctly. We're doing now a, a sample model in AUB and it will be replicated all over the hospitals. Volunteers are willing to do so. But the new website will reflect much more than just uh, this. Is, I'm sorry I interrupted you, Khalil, but... Uh, I had to say, because it was something I'm not proud of. The website as is, is not something that shows everything. That's it. Actually, I thought it was a pretty good website. That's going to be an excellent one once you, once you revamp it, I guess. Because also it has a lot of the websites in Lebanon, when you look at NGO websites, it's hard to even find like where to donate. And your website actually has like a donor uh, tab that's very easy to access. Uh, Yorgi, this was very good. I really enjoyed like your thoughts and philosophy. I like how you're talking about blood donation is therapeutic on both the personal uh, and national level. Uh, it seems to me that uh, Donation Conte has become like a household name in Lebanon. You're a trusted and respected organization, uh, which says a lot uh, in our country where everything is fragmented, including the healthcare system. You talked a lot about the challenges, but what do you see like the current bottleneck is for you to like scale your operations and like where do you see the future of the blood donation scene in Lebanon headed? I'm going to be very honest here. I'm, I never took money from the government, right? Never. In 12 years, I never even considered proposing anything to the government. In my nature, I'm a little rebel. I mean, I can't have double standards. I can't be fighting corruption in the government and then asking them for money. It's surreal. And so we had to do our own fundraising, our own events, our own smart ways of collecting or trying to fund all this initiative. And we had the bracelet. I don't know if you remember it, Muhammad. It's a bracelet with a blood type and we sell it for $5,000, $3. And imagine I was able to sustain the, fir the first four years of the organization just by selling the bracelet. People were laughing at me. I mean, seriously, you're selling bracelet? I mean, yes, and it's getting money and I'm able to pay my phone bills and to pay my little office. The, where, I, where I am right now, after the explosion, we got a beautiful support from our friends that work at Google, and we had half a million in, in, in support. $250,000 went to do proper relief work, and we had a beautiful model for that, because we thought, let's start with our donors, the blood donors. We had 2,400 blood donors in that area that was affected by the blast. And we had to call them all to check up on them to see if they need any help. And out of those 2,400, around 200 people asked for urgent help. 
because the others either were seeing other organization in their house or they were saying we're not expecting the blood donation organization to come and help us and so we went there and we supported those 200 families we had hands that we put them in action so we also helped Afrojoa in their mission at Carantina. we received some goods and some used clothes and some equipments we directly distribute them but and also we got some funds to be able to replicate our work and when i look at the country i cannot be working only in beirut and to say that i cover the whole country or we you can't scale up if you're not closer to the people that you need you the most and i realize that if we do not work in tripoli which is the, the area with that that is the most affected by the corruption in the country, by the collapse of the country. If we don't start by the last first, nothing gets done. We'll be just looping. That's why the moment I received some funds, we went there to Tripoli, took a small office, get trained a beautiful team over there. And now we're working a lot with the hospitals in Tripoli. We're working a lot, organizing a lot of blood drives in Akkar, in Tripoli. It's sort of a virgin area that nobody ever worked there. And the people over there are the most generous people of all humanity. These are the poorest people in the Middle East. Not only in the Middle East, in all, in all this area. Tripoli is the poorest city. Though it has the first richest billionaires of the world, but it is the most poor city of all the Mediterranean, if you want. And so, I mean, I get shivers every time I see someone with no shoes coming and saying, you know what? I want to give blood too. Give me that chance. We feel just humbled. We, I mean, their sacrifice or their, their unconditional giving give us hope that there is hope in this country. That yes, with these kind of people that has nothing and they're just here to do good for the glory of God, for the glory of creator, for the glory of humanity. It's with these people that we can rebuild the country. That's why I'm putting a lot of effort now on Tripoli. Uh, credits goes to all the volunteers up there. We're, I'm also trying to tap a bit in the Bika area. So I'm starting to look up there. We don't have one bus now, we have four buses. So I can dedicate a, a bus only for Tripoli to replicate the model fully up there, to have a small call center also for Tripoli because our call center is based on some staff and some volunteers. So this hybrid model is beautiful. And I can get more volunteers in Tripoli because in the call center, if a, if a guy from Tripoli speaks with a guy from Tripoli, the dialect, the language is easier and then it can convince better. So I can't be just in Beirut trying to secure blood in Akkar. We, we can get closer. So my plan for the next two, three, four, five years is to operate more in the borders, operate more in rurally, organize more blood drive, around the country, not only focus in Beirut, because Beirut is exhausted. And with all the bureaucracy, Beirut is never enough in Beirut. But in the, in, in the rural areas, or in Tripoli, in the Bika, and in Sur, in Saida, you can close the gap. And whatever is in excess, you get to Beirut. You can't expect to do this in Beirut. So that's our model. I know we don't need more buses. Four are more than enough. If we can have four drives a day, genius, if we can do that. And I know that I need more volunteers. That's why we spend also a lot of effort on volunteers, training them, empowering the youth, 
whether call center blood drive authorization or simply just go and recruit donors or try to find a place where we can organize a blood drive in your area, in your school, in your university, in your company, wherever you go, constantly think where we can do something good. This makes me so happy to hear. I personally trained and worked in Tripoli for three months and I can attest that it was the most rewarding experience I had in my short career so far. And I'm glad to hear that you're able to create the system, sustainable model, scale it up. I'm glad to hear that you're uh, versatile. I want to shift the conversation a little bit and ask you if you think there's a role for emerging technologies such as smartphone apps, such as drones, which a lot of other countries uh, with uh, little resources are uh, using if they have a central bank, blood bank. I strongly believe in technology and technology can help us tremendously. Just like I believed in social media when I first started, um, I felt social media was a great way to start something. You cannot keep it constantly online. You have to go offline. You have to go on the ground. But it was a great tool as an add-on for the mass to see what you're doing, what you, what you talk about, what you preach, and what you're doing. Mobile apps have been spending the last 10 years of my life trying to, say, to, trying to come up with the best model for blood donation. But it's, somehow it's not easy. And it's not like a match. It's not the Tinder of blood. So you, you can't just match the donor and the receiver. It, it shouldn't go that way because then there, there will be transaction between them. Then when you know that someone needs blood and you're desperately in need of this, you will be willing to say, you know what? If you give blood, I'll give you $100. And then we'll be doing the opposite of technolo what technology should do. I mean, technology should help us secure more blood freely, not to offer a platform where people can exchange more uh, money or um, just because they need... Uh, Blackmail each other. Yeah. Exactly. We don't need to do that. And so... Technology is important if we have a third party protecting the privacy of the donor and the receiver, which is what I'm doing right now. I launched a beautiful platform called dsctoday.org. It's a map that visualizes all the need of the country in a lively manner with, the, with, the, um, with our call center. So since all the family call us, we put them in our call center, and now we can display them on a map with a red dot. And when you press on the dot, You'll have the list of the hospital saying what is the type of blood they need, what is their opening hours on during the week, on weekends. And then whenever they press, I want to donate, they get directly linked to our WhatsApp number in the call center, and then they continue the process. Technology is helping us a lot. The mobile app, I figured out the way that we need to do it. Just finding the right developers in these times it's tough. It's tough. I mean, all the good developers, either they have a good project in their hand, and every time I get a volunteer to do this, whenever they come, they're super excited. Whenever they dig in, they see, oh my God, it's so complicated and it's so tough. And so I've been jumping from a developer to another, and I know this is not healthy. That's why I stopped everything now. We're doing everything all over, finding a new way. That's why in our new website, which is expected to happen to be launched in a month, we will have a portal where the donor will have his full profile, where the volunteer will have his full profile, where the hospital can put their need for the whole month. Because if you give me your need ahead of time, I can plan. I can organize the volunteers. I can plan the, the blood drives. And the, for, the fourth type is for the companies, those who organized blood drives before. Now they can see the schedule of our drives. They can book blood drives ahead of time. They can see whenever they have availability and all this stuff. So 
the portal will allow us four different kinds of people to communicate with us. We've been using a lot of help from Microsoft, from Facebook, Microsoft mostly. We're using a lot of tools from Microsoft. We've got uh, great discounts to be able to have licenses and users for every operator, for every volunteer, for everything. And these take a lot of time, a lot of time to organize all this. I'm happy that we were able to do it in a relatively very fast pace, Corona times. We did that digitalization transformation in Corona, in, in our lockdown. And I'm almost ready to launch everything now. So I think I need one, one or two months and I launch all my tech. I, I will deploy all my technologies to solve this problem. And I think we're that close to have a perfect model that can be replicable all over the, all over the world. It's a unique model all over the world. And I've had consultants the founder of NHS in London and the, another consultant for the North America blood banks. The guy told me, I know organization and blood banks in America that has a budget of $1 billion to do the work that you're doing. And I just can't understand how you're doing it with less than 200,000. I mean, it's a huge what you're doing. With, I think, I mean, discussing it right now, it's a huge undertaking. You're basically taking the role of like a state in the U.S. or a central blood bank in any other country on your own without any support from the Lebanese government. So, I mean, this is, this is a huge undertaking, and it seems like it is more and more successful every day. So, uh, As long as they stay away from it, it will work. I'm confident. <laughs> as ironic as it may sound, but... Every time we ask something from the government, they did the opposite. So I'm not asking anything now. I even had a meeting in 2009 when I had just 500 success stories. I was sat with the guy and I told him, you know what? You are in charge of something in the health. I'm telling you that our model saved 500 lives freely. The guy laughed, laughed at me in a condescending tone and said, are you crazy? There's nothing free in this country. Let every person remove the needle from their hand. It's a, it's a saying in Arabic where we say, It means, let each pick his own battle. And what do you want? You want A+. Plus? I'll call my bodyguard and he'll get you to A+. Plus. What's that thing that you're working on? The guy was talking like this. And it's at that moment I realized that whatever you're asking them, they're on a different level, different planet. They do not live with the people. They do not see the... The suffering and, the, and, and the, the, the chaos and the craziness they went they go through every time someone needs blood. And that's the guy who was in charge of the health back in 2009. Himself, the guy himself, in 2012, when the Order of Pharmacists was honoring me, the guy told me, oh, you did not hear my, my advice. You did not take my advice. I told him, I'm glad I did not take your advice because I'm getting more and more blood for patients and I'm able to serve them freely with nothing in return they don't even know me they just know just give freely yeah yeah i think Georgi, you've done a great job with this and i think ngos i mean that's that's an example of like in the absence of a good federally run government in lebanon organizations like yours ngos are are taking the role right now and i think this is a message of hopefully hope for the country because this shows that the people themselves can do the necessary changes to make the country a better place for the citizens, independent of the corruption of the, of the government that is there. 
And I think you, your website also gives a great example of being totally open about your funding. So basically, people know when you donate, you know exactly where the money is going and how much funding is needed for overhead in your organization. Because let's say if you're an organization that takes 100% of the funds and, and 20% goes for donations and uh, 80% goes for overhead, then that's not a good organization to donate to. And, and you show that in your, in your website. So I think, I think in multiple ways, you're showing that, one, you're promoting community work, getting people together, people who don't talk to each other, getting them together to donate blood. And then you're promoting like a national blood donation program that is helping the country. So uh, I think people can help right both by volunteering with you, by donating money through the website. And can people volunteer from outside the country? Expats who live outside the country, how can they volunteer from outside? Of course they can. I mean, there's always a way for someone to do good. Either they know people in the country that can give blood and then they can encourage them from abroad. They can support us financially because most of the expats, I don't like it when we only see them as uh, money, whether we like it or not, especially in these times, every dollar counts, mm-hmm. right? So in these times where, they, where, they, where our money, where our currency is, you know, Balart, uh, Decimated, devaluated. Under the ground. Devalu- <laughs> yeah, not even devaluated. It's, but, 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 <laughs> so for the expats, especially if you have a network over there, now is a great time to donate. Now is a great time to donate directly to the organization. Stop passing by the government. Stop thinking. And I have a lot to say. I had a meeting yesterday with an embassy that says that, you know what, we're getting you $500 million dollars. For the government, is, we will not give, in, give it to the government. We're going to give it to the NGOs, but we're going to pay for the experts in this country, country, and country, in that European country, so that they give you their expertise. And I said, you're getting more money for more experts to present a solution that is not feasible in the country, in Lebanon. What works in one street does not work in the other street. What works in that neighborhood doesn't work in the other neighborhood. We just can't export know-how from Guatemala or from France or from the States. It just doesn't work in our country. Stop spending millions and millions on consultants and advisors. It just doesn't work. I I salute you, Jorgi. You're a rare success story of a local talent in a failing state. You're a force of good. You've created visibility, awareness. And I think the most important thing that you did was you changed the culture, which is a huge undertaking and changes heart, changes heart. So I salute you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Muhammad. You know, I, if I may add one more thing, because that's an exercise I did it the last year. And I've been trying to understand the behaviors at the SC. Why do we do this? Why when we organize a blood drive, we tell the company, we're not going to charge you anything. It's free. But if you want to support, you can support. So the good practices, why am I giving a lesson to a volunteer that did this kind of action on the ground. And when I go back to it, it goes back to the values. It's only the day that I posted the values loud and clear in the office that the volunteers, every time they do something, they can relate to the value. And it's only then they would know how to react. I don't have to say anything anymore. They just read the values because under each value, they would know. Sacrificial love means you have to keep on giving until it hurts. That doesn't mean drain yourself all, all the blood, but it's okay if you get a little bit hurt to give blood to save someone. It goes. 
when they read it, sacrificial love underneath it, there's giving until it hurts. I did not say this, Mother Teresa said this. When you say heart integrity, means I cannot accept a volunteer lying, right? Cannot accept a volunteer lying to another donor so that he donates blood. This is wrong. And these were stuff that I talked about a lot in the last 10 years with my operators and my volunteers. Just be honest. It's only honesty that will get there. And when we say, for example, courageous faith, courageous faith in one another, courageous faith in the country, these are values. Courageous faith means finding a way when there is no way. And so if we're not able to do a blood drive here, fine, just find the next one. And these are like guiding lights for the volunteers to know how to react. And hoping right now is how to transfuse those values from the volunteers to the donors. Once you do this, then we will see a community healing properly. It's, it's a lot of, because I've been doing a lot of reflection. I've been working with a lot of big doctors in many countries. And I'm realizing that it goes, every time it goes back to the values. Put them loud and clear. And in our new website, they will be very loud and clear. Because it's only then that every person would know how to react if he embraces those values. Thanks, thanks to both of you for being here today. And, uh, and I think hopefully the listeners have learned uh, a lot about what uh, Donation Comte does and its role in Lebanon. And again, if people uh, want to help, they can either volunteer in Lebanon. Looks like they can volunteer outside of Lebanon by contacting uh, you, Yorgi, or Donation Comte, right? And they can find the contact online or they can donate uh, online on your website. It's very easy to donate. And I think it looks like it might be even easier on the newer website once it comes out. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a beautiful conversation. We're looking forward for much more. Yep, hopefully soon. Thanks. Yeah, inshallah. All the best. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Great Bye. night.